0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I'd invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. We continue our study of Luke's Gospel beginning this morning. In verse 22 of Luke 13, Luke writes, He went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter. And will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door. And you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying. Lord open to us. Then he'll answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say. We ate and drank in your presence. And you taught in our streets. He will say. I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. And people will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God and behold Some are last will be first And some are first who will be last It's the word of the Lord for us this morning I've done good, a good bit of flying on airplanes this year More than I normally do on any given year And I notice something every time I get on an airplane That somehow I forget between the time I got off the last one And the time I get on the next one And that's that airplane seats are made for short people (laughs) They're made for small people If you are small, there are some benefits to being small You're comfortable on an airplane If you're big, uh, that's one of the, the detractors Right, Michael? Like, it doesn't work. So I found strategies to overcome this problem over time. One of those is to do whatever I can to find my way to an exit row seat. Because if you've flown on airplanes very much, you know the exit row seat accommodates big people a little better. You have more room for your legs because the exit row is wide. You don't have to fly from point A to point B with your knees in your nostrils. You can actually stretch them. And quite frequently, I've been able to find my way somehow by the kindness and generosity of some uh, worker for the airline to the exit row. And what happens if you've never sat in an exit row is you take your seat and just before takeoff, a flight attendant comes and stands in front of the exit rows and says something along the lines of this. "Um, I need your attention for a moment, those of you who are in this row. Uh, I need to know... uh, In the case of an emergency, in the unlikely case of an emergency, they usually say unlikely just to set your mind at ease. Um, I need to know, are you willing and able to assist us in the situation of opening the doors and helping people out of the aircraft? And what's noticeable when they go through this, normally the same spiel every time, but they say to the people in the exit row, I need a verbal confirmation from each one of you. And they go person to person to person, are you willing and able to help? And you have to say, yes, I'm willing to help. That is the right answer. It is the only appropriate answer. There is nothing else that will suffice for that question. A verbal answer, yes. I've had this experience many times. I know, you just say yes. But there's always somebody in the row who thinks there's another answer. They nod their head like this, or they give a thumbs up, Or they stare at their shoes. And every time, the flight attendant will stop and say, I need a verbal answer. You need to say yes. And she doesn't move on until they say yes. And if they refuse to say yes, she will make them get up and move to another seat somewhere else. It's important to answer the right question the right way. Similarly, the gospel requires a personal response. And there's only one response that is right and good and appropriate. Throughout the New Testament, the the biblical writers make this clear over and over and over again. If we went to Matthew chapter 3, we would see John the Baptist, who we studied earlier in Luke's gospel, and he's moving around and he's preaching and his message to the crowds that he's preaching the gospel to is always this, repent For the kingdom of God is at hand. You've heard the gospel. There's one right response. It's repent. Jesus in Luke chapter 5, just a few pages back in your Bible, verse 32 said this. He said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I've been preaching the gospel over and over again. And I'm calling people to respond, particularly sinners, to respond to it in the right way. And there's only one right way. And that response is... Is repentance after Jesus death and resurrection and the Apostles launch out and begin to preach the good news of Jesus as the church gets established and in Acts chapter 2 verse 38 we see the Apostle Peter and what is he preaching well he's saying this he's preaching to them saying repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit over and over and over again The heralds of the gospel proclaim the gospel, and they call people to respond. And the response is always repentance. And repentance really is a summary term that simply means to turn away from sin and to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's two pieces. It's to turn away from a sinful life for yourself and to turn toward Jesus Christ, bowing before him, saying, Lord Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I want you to forgive my sin. I want you to be mine. I am yours. That is the right response to the gospel. There is no other response that works. And in our text today, Jesus reminds his hearers, and he reminds us that this is the ultimate issue. It's the most critical decision of our lives. It is a decision that he makes explicitly clear here has serious eternal consequences and it's to that issue that we turn in Luke's gospel chapter 13 today the way the text unfolds before us is a question is is sort of raised an answer is given and and then Jesus sort of follows that answer up or sort of in his answer he envelops both a warning and a promise So we'll see a question, an answer, a warning, and a promise. Verse 22, he went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, Luke reminds us that Jesus is moving. He's not moving aimlessly around the countryside. He he is laser-focused on a destination. He is headed toward Jerusalem. Back in chapter 9, verse uh, 51, we saw... Uh, Luke reports to us that Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem. He has in, in clear view now the cross and he's heading toward it and all of the things surrounding his death. So he's making a movement in that direction and as we find ourselves in Luke 13, we're literally only months away from the events that will unfold there in Jerusalem when he arrives. But Jesus is moving in that direction and he continues to teach all along the way. And on one such occasion, we don't know exactly where in relation to the previous context, but he's teaching as he regularly did, and someone apparently raises a question out loud. And the question is quite simple. Lord, will those who are saved be few? Will those who are being saved, or those are, or will those who are saved be few? It's an honest question. It's a question a lot of people have pondered throughout the history of the world. Maybe at some point you've thought about that question. Exactly how many people are going to make it into heaven? Is it going to be a lot of people or is it going to be a few people? And how do we even assess whether it's a lot or a few? Lord, will those who are saved be few? The word saved here is in the Greek present passive, which gives the idea of, of continually being saved and the passive sort of indicates that it's being done by a power outside of the subject. So the idea is, uh, are, are those who are, who are in process of being saved, is there just a few of those or is there a lot of them? Now, we don't know exactly what prompted the question. It could have been a couple of things. It could have been Jesus teaching uh, so far. And some of the things he's taught seems to indicate that there will be a few. But he hasn't sort of dwelt on that issue too much. It could be just the underwhelming response to Jesus' preaching that has piqued the question. Jesus, the Son of God, is taught like nobody else. He's done miracles like nobody else. And yet, even though large crowds gather, it doesn't seem that large crowds are repenting and submitting to him as Savior and Lord. It seems a bit underwhelming. So maybe that was part of what's piqued the interest or it could have simply been that this issue was an ongoing debate for quite some time among the rabbis. If you were to go back and read early rabbinic writings, you would find that the rabbis would argue about this question. Are there, how many people are going to make it into heaven? Now, the rabbis were largely uh, sort of in, in, in harmony together in the sense that they thought that it would be a few rather than many. They were quite certain that the bulk of those who made it in would be The Jews. And maybe some others. Now there may be some, some particularly uh, uh, evil, sinful Jews who don't make it in and they would argue about that. But certainly most Gentiles would not. And the world is made up mostly of Gentiles. So there was this debate though, theologically among the rabbis, of exactly who gets in and who, de- who doesn't. Like how many and how few. It was one of the many things that people could argue about theologically, yet nobody could actually solve with divinity. So it may be against that backdrop that the person raises the question with Jesus. Maybe he can answer the question. Maybe he can settle this theological debate once and for all. Well, they largely agreed, at least in their day, that it was going to be a few. I would say the opposite is probably true in our day, isn't it? If you were to poll people today and ask people, do you think there's Few people or many people that are going to make it to heaven. What do you think most people would say? Most people in in our culture would say the opposite. They would say, there's going to be many. Most people are going to go there. Most people who die are going to go to a better place. You hear that at nearly every funeral that you attend. I mean, they may argue that there's some obviously really evil people in the world who aren't going to get there, but most people are pretty good, and most people will go to heaven. There's a poll done not too many years ago by the Cultural Research Center at at, uh, Arizona Christian University. And they were asking people, polled 1,000 people, they were asking them their thoughts on what's gonna happen when you die. And the results were somewhat surprising, although not so much, uh, in some ways. Here's what they found. They found that 54% of the people surveyed believe that they will go to heaven. When asked, do you think you'll go to heaven? 54% said yes. I'm pretty sure I'm going to heaven Only 2% Felt like they were going to go to hell That's pretty Do you find that interesting? Only like 2% Think they're going to hell 15% Are honest enough to say Hey I don't have any idea what's going to happen 13% Say yep yeah, there isn't anything after life you, you live you die you're buried That's it believe in reincarnation. I'm going to come back as a monkey or a goose or a dog or maybe a better person. 8% believe that they're going to go to some place of purification prior to entering heaven. So we could lump those in with the 54% who think they're going to heaven. They just think there's a rest stop along the way. What do you think about the statistics? Does that surprise you or is that about what you would expect? It's interesting. They, they surveyed some other questions. They found um, of those who believed that they were gonna go to heaven when they die, 48% of them believed that they were gonna go to heaven when they die if they were generally good or if they do enough good things. That was the basis on which they would find entrance to the kingdom of God, to heaven. Only one-third in the survey said that salvation is obtained by faith in Jesus Christ. That's one-third of those who answered? But I found this particularly striking as well. 63% of adults affirmed this statement. 64%, excuse me. Having faith matters more than which faith you have. Would that resonate with you for a minute? Having faith matters more than which faith you have. 64 people in that survey, 64% of the people, affirm that statement. Such a common thought today. It doesn't really matter what your faith is. As long as you have faith, it's going to get you in. Lynn Munsell, who's the president of Arizona Christian University, said this upon looking at the results of the survey. He said, The lack of understanding of basic Christian theology is stunning, with potentially devastating consequences for individual souls, and really for all aspects of American life and culture. It's a pretty fair assessment. Suffice it to say, though, in the first century and today, people are debating this question. Will there only be a few who make it into heaven, or are there going to be many who make it into heaven? And though the debate has raged for centuries now, when Jesus was asked to weigh in on the issue, he responds in a very surprising way. His response is this. He says to them by way of an answer in verse 23, part B, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now of note in his response is there was an individual who asked him the question. An individual asked Jesus a question. Jesus answers not the individual, but he answers the crowd. The individual asked the question, but Jesus answers them, them. The whole crowd. He takes this individual's question as an opportunity to teach the crowd something they needed to learn. It was something that more than this man needed to hear. It was something that everybody needed to hear. The original question that was asked was a theological question. It was a theoretical question. It was a speculative question. Jesus, what do you think? Is there going to be few or is there going to be many? And Jesus as he does quite frequently, refuses to answer the theological question. Instead of diving in on this theologically debated topic that's been a heated debate for some time, he ignores that question to some degree altogether and uses it as an opportunity to make a personal point that people needed to hear. He says, in essence, instead of debating how many people are going to get to heaven, you need to be concerned about whether you are going to get to heaven. That's the real issue. It's far more important to figure out if you're going to enter into the kingdom of God, if you're going to be there, than it is to figure out how many ultimately are going to make it. How many ultimately get to heaven, that's God's business, whether you get there or not. Now that's something for you to be thinking about. Something for you to be striving for, in fact. Now it's interesting, his approach is quite similar to something that we've already seen in Luke's Gospel. You re- may remember, not too long ago, Jesus was asked another question by some others. He, he encounters some other people, and he, he reflects on a couple of tragedies that had happened. Do you remember that? A, a tower had fallen on some people and tragically crushed them to death, seemingly out of the blue. And there was another account where uh, some people had been worshipping in church, and Herod's soldiers came into church while they were worshipping and slaughtered them while they were worshipping God in in the church. And the people were sort of wrestling theologically in their minds with what to make of that. Like, Jesus, what do we do with that? Like, they're debating, is it because these people were the worst sinners in the world that, that these tragedies happened to them? And that was really what they were thinking. And Jesus says, that's what you're thinking, huh? And he doesn't even weigh in on that question. But he says to them, unless you repent, do you remember this? You too will likewise perish. He's saying, listen, you don't need to spend your time trying to figure out things that are beyond your ability to figure out. You don't need to waste a bunch of your time sort of spinning on the speculative and the theoretical and the theological and debating these matters. What you really need to be concerned about is the condition of your own soul. Unless you repent, you will perish. And it's the same thing he does here. He says, I'm and in It's not gonna weigh in on a theological debate. We're not gonna sit here and have a big theological conversation. We'll talk about something that really matters. And what really matters, and what you need to be thinking about is are you gonna enter the kingdom of God? Don't worry about anybody else. What about you? Strive to enter through the narrow door but Jesus has no interest in en- endless sort of theological debate. He's not a, a theological hobbyist. He's not somebody who just em- enjoys sort of debating controversial theolog- theology. He never seems to take that bait. He always takes it as an opportunity to make it personal and to force the examiner to examine themselves. And I would say there are an awful lot of people in our Christian culture today Who need to take Jesus' lead and follow what he models right here Brian Bell said this He says salvation is not a theory to discuss It's a miracle to experience And that's what Jesus was getting at here Strive to enter through the narrow door. This word strive is the Greek word agonizomai. It means to exert oneself, it means to fight, it means to labor fervently. It implies great exertion in the face of great difficulty. It implies sort of a a consistent, persistent effort The word itself has a backdrop of the sports arena. It pictures the, it pictures the runner who's, who's running in the race, who's striving earnestly to make it to the finish line. Or we want to make an American sort of illustration of it. It's the football player who's running down the field, who's got people trying to tackle him and he's striving with every ounce of his being to get to the end zone against great opposition. And Jesus says to them, you need to strive to enter through the narrow gate. It's a picture of concentration, a picture of discipline, a picture of conviction, a, a picture of effort. that's needed to win sort of an athletic competition. Strive like that to enter through the narrow door. Well, what's he talking about here? Is Jesus saying that, that, that by our works, we can, we, can, we can sort of work or strive our way into the kingdom of God? Of course that's not what he's teaching. We can earn our salvation by our good works. The Bible has made that clear over and over and over again, and we've seen it over and over again in Luke's Gospel. But the Bible does speak of our salvation as something that is both past, present, and future all at the same time. There's a sense in which everybody who's a Christian has been saved, is being saved, and will one day be saved. Theologically, we would say that's justification, sanctification, and glorification. There's a sense in which at the moment I repent and turn from my sin and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I'm justified, I'm saved in the sense that I'm declared not guilty of my sins because my sins have been paid for at the cross of Jesus. But what happens at that moment is I'm filled with the Holy Spirit who begins to transform me into the image of Christ and my life begins to change and look more and more progressively like Jesus. In that sense, I am being saved throughout my life until the day when i die or christ returns and in that moment the struggle and the battle with sin is over and the striving is done and i'm glorified and made like christ in the sense of the battle with sin is over exalted to spend eternity with christ What Jesus is saying here is not that we work our way into the kingdom of God by our striving, or our good works. What he's saying here is this. Even though God is sovereign over salvation, and even though salvation at its heart is a gift from God to be received, we are not passive in that process. We are not passive as God is working out salvation in us. Men, in fact, must repent of their sin and turn to Christ. Men must take up their cross daily and follow after Jesus. Men must strive to enter through the narrow door. We're responsible for responding to the gospel. We're responsible for obeying Jesus. And as the Holy Spirit changes us from the inside, we're actively obeying Christ, we're actively loving Christ, we're actively following after Christ. That's why Paul writes in Philippians chapter one, and he says to the church in Philippi, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, or live out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is to say, continue striving after Christ. Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, in fact, uses a different analogy. He uses battle language to describe the Christian experience. Ephesians 6, he says, beginning in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And it's the picture of the Christian life as not a passive one where the Christian who now has repented sits on his couch and, and watches sitcoms while eating Cheetos until Christ returns. It's a picture of a battle where we put on armor and we're striving against enemies. The believer's not passive. She's actively standing and actively wrestling The opponents here are the devil and rulers and authorities and spiritual forces of evil. And he's striving against those enemies. The Christian life is not a walk in the park. As salvation, as we are saved, being saved, and one day will be saved, as that process is playing out start to finish, it's not a walk in the park where we're passive people who do nothing and allow everything to just happen for us. No, it's a battle and they're enemies and there's effort and there's striving. We battle against temptation. We battle against disappointment and against discouragement. We battle against unbelief that creeps back into our soul. We battle against our sinful flesh that constantly is rearing itself up and driving us away from Christ. We battle against our own laziness and our own complacency and we, we fight against and we strive against our own materialism and our selfishness and all of those things. That would seek to get us off the path of Christ the journey to heaven for a Christian is a picture of striving to enter in through the narrow door it's a striving to hold on to our faith and to honor Christ with a godly life the Apostle Paul at the end of his life 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. He looks back on his life and he reflects and he uses this same word, agonizomai, It's translated fought here. But he says, I have fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. He looks back on his life with a sense of contentment and a sense of encouragement and a sense of of assurance. He knows his life wasn't perfect. He's made that clear in his writings. But he can look back and he can say, I was striving to enter through the narrow door. I fought the good fight. I fought the good fight right up to the end. I didn't fall away. I didn't abandon Christ. I didn't disqualify myself. I didn't stop pursuing Jesus. I didn't stop serving Christ. I didn't stop worshiping Jesus. I didn't stop loving him. I didn't stop following. I fought the good fight. I strove to enter through the narrow door. An interesting word picture that he uses this narrow door. Chuck Swindoll writes, he says, to protect property from intruders, a reasonably well off home featured a, a walled courtyard with a large solid door, which was open only to allow animals or carts to enter and leave. Family members and guests routinely entered and exited through a smaller inset door, which usually remained open during daylight hours and was closed at night. To good historical context for us. Much like the city gates that would be open in the daytime, when nighttime would fall, the gates would be closed, and nobody would come in or go out until sunrise the next day. It's that picture that's being painted here, and it's that cultural backdrop against which Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Now, to some degree, he is answering the original question, isn't he? When he says, strive to enter through the narrow door, the original question was, are there going to be few or many? He says, there's a way to get in, but there's only one way, one door, and it's a narrow door. That somewhat answers the question, right, in general. But it isn't the point he's potentially trying to make here. He does, though, in other places, make clear just how narrow the door is. In John chapter 10, verse 9, he says this, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he'll be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. So much for that idea that it doesn't matter what faith you have as long as you have faith, right? 64% of the people surveyed would do good to read John chapter 10, verse 9, where Jesus says, I am the door. If you want to get in, you'll go through me or you won't get in. Or John 14, six, where he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's not many doors that lead to heaven. There's one door that leads to heaven. There are not many ways that lead to heaven. There's one way that leads to heaven and it's through the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in him. That's it, there is no other way. The gospel's personal and it demands a personal response. Instead of contemplating theological questions, instead of worrying about how many people are gonna be saved, what we need to really be concerned about is making sure that we're striving to enter through the narrow door. Arthur Pink writes this, not the pop artist in case you're confused, says this, it's not enough to listen to preaching about this gate nor to study its structure or admire the wisdom of its appointment. It must be entered. Sermons on repentance and faith in Christ avail us nothing unless they move our hearts to comply therewith. You get it? It's not enough to hear it. It's not enough to think about it. It's not enough to ponder it or even to theologically debate it. What a person needs to do is repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ so that they might enter through the narrow door. And Jesus says there's a warning. There's a warning here's a warning. Many, I tell you, will seek to enter and they won't be able to. What's the master of the house has risen and shut the door as you begin to stand outside and knock, saying, Lord, open to us, and he'll answer, I do not know you where you have come from. What is this? What's the idea here? Now, what's Jesus trying to say? He's saying many people are, are gonna strive to enter, they're gonna want to enter, they're gonna seek to enter, but they're not gonna be able. What is he talking about? Is he talking about people who believe in Jesus sincerely and they want to be saved but somehow they can't, somehow they're supernaturally prevented from sort of acting on that? Of course, that's not the issue. The Bible makes clear from really the start to finish that everyone who repents and trusts in Jesus will be saved. Jesus said it this way in John six, verse three. He said this. He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me Whoever comes to me Say this last part with me I will never cast out Whoever comes to me I will never cast out Jesus isn't saying there are some people Who genuinely want to be saved but they can't What he's talking about here Is people who wait too late To respond To repent and trust him He's talking about people who procrastinate and stall. People who are too busy or too distracted with other priorities. People who, are, who realize too late that the gospel is true and they need to respond to it. You don't catch it really well here because there's a translation issue. If you were to go back and read original Greek language in which the New Testament was written, there's no punctuation no periods, no commas. So when translated into a modern language, the translators have to put periods, commas, punctuation in. And unfortunately here in this particular passage, particularly in the ESV and some others, uh, the, the way they've done that is unfortunate. I'm gonna show you a side-by-side that I think will help you make this, make this clear. The ESV says, for many I tell you will seek to enter and will not be able, period, new thought. When once the master of the house has risen to shut the door, a better translation that would make more clear what Jesus is saying is this For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able once the master of the house has risen and shut the door. Do you see the difference? The difference isn't that there's two separate things here. He's making one statement that. There's gonna come a time when the master of the house is gonna get up and he's gonna shut the door and the door's gonna be shut and at that point, there are gonna be other people who will seek to enter in just like people wanted to get into the city at nighttime after the city gate was closed, right? Just like when, when the door is closed, it's closed and people will try to get in but they'll realize much to their own horror that it's too late. The opportunity is passed. The door is shut. And it's a sad and pathetic picture, isn't it? And he says there are people who will rise up after the master has risen, the door will be shut, you'll begin to stand outside. He says this to this crowd you, you'll begin to stand outside and you'll knock at the door saying, Lord, open, let us in. Only to hear, I don't know where you're from. The door is shut and I will not open it. I don't know where you're from. The Lord makes clear that he doesn't know them and that he won't open the door. And it reminds me, the picture that comes to my mind immediately is the Old Testament story of Noah. You remember Noah, building the ark in obedience to the Lord and he was preaching over and over to his, to his community. There's a flood coming and you're gonna die. Your only hope is this boat that I'm building won't you please come and get in this boat with my family and I and you'll be safe and what did his community do they laughed at him they mocked him they talked about him behind his back they wrote him off as a a lunatic right up until the time that the rain began to fall and the floods began to rise and Noah and his family entered the ark and the Bible tells us the Lord shut them in I don't know if you ever imagined in your mind what that scene must have looked like from that point forward, but it had to be horrific, didn't it? All of these people who heard the preaching of Noah, right? And the floods are rising. And they're treading water for their dear life, banging on the outside of this boat to please somebody let me in, only to hear the door shut. Your opportunity was great, but well, your opportunity is past. You will die in the flood. It's too late. You missed your chance. That is the image of what Jesus is painting here. You better strive to enter through the narrow door because the day's coming when the door is going to be shut and you will not be able to enter. It's a really sad picture. of people who realize too late what they've missed. People who heard the gospel over and over and they thought it was a joke. They procrastinated and thought they had plenty of time. This is an aside. I was doing something online, doing some research this week, and I flipped to something and I saw an advertisement for uh, a little teaching series on procrastination. It promised to help you overcome procrastination. And I thought, you know, that's pretty interesting. I probably could benefit from that. There are things that I tend to put off. For 15 minutes, I looked at all the information about this tool to help you overcome procrastination. And you know what I ultimately did? I said, you know what, I'm going to send this to my email box. I'm going to link it and send it to my email, so I'll come back to it later. (laughs) I literally procrastinated looking at the thing to help me not procrastinate. It's silly with a tool to help you overcome procrastination. But it's eternal suicide when you do that with the gospel. And you realize that there's a day coming when the door is going to be shut. And it's too late. It's too late. Oh, they say, Lord, but you can't leave us out. We know you. We ate with you. You You taught in our streets. Like we know who you are. We're familiar with you. We've been around you. We've listened to you. We've heard what you had to say. I mean, surely, surely we're, we can come in. And he says the same thing to him again. I don't know where you're from. Away from me, you evildoers. And they depart from him and go to a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a description of hell. A place of utter misery where people realize fully and consciously what they've missed. And here he's speaking primarily to Jews. And he's saying, you Jews who thought you were a shoe in to the kingdom are gonna find yourself on the outside looking in. And guess who you're gonna see? You're gonna see Abraham and Isaac and you're gonna see Jacob and all the prophets that you so revere. They're gonna be gathered around a table celebrating at a banquet in the kingdom of God and you're gonna be on the outside looking in. And you'll realize once and for all that it has never been about your heritage. It's always been about faith. And to make matters worse, you're gonna look in there and you're gonna see people coming from the north and the south and the east and the west. He's talking about the Gentiles. You Jews are out on the outside looking in, weeping and gnashing your teeth. You're gonna see your heroes of the faith around a table with the Lord that's filled up with a bunch of Gentiles enjoying the joy and wonder and splendor and beauty of heaven celebrating their eternal salvation with God and you're going to be on the outside looking in forever filled with regret that you didn't listen and you didn't respond What a sad, sad picture. And Jesus is motivating his crowd to do this, to repent and trust Jesus. That's the message. There's a day coming when that opportunity won't be in front of you and you don't know when it's going to be and that's the message for you today and for me as well, isn't it? Here's the issue. I mean, you, maybe you like to debate theology. Maybe you like to listen to sermons. Maybe you sort of like to sort of kick that stuff intellectually around in your mind. Maybe you find some joy and pleasure in being around church people or the fellowship that comes along with that and all of that is good and all of that's great and all of it's fine. It's all good and fine so, so long as you repent and confess your sin and bow before Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Absent that, all of those other things are meaningless and the only thing they'll get you is being locked outside the door, looking in. Forever. So if you're here this morning and you've been procrastinating, bowing before Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you need to repent now. If for you it's been this external thing that you enjoy thinking about, it needs to become internal now. Isaiah said seek the Lord while he may be found Call upon him while he's near That's the message for you And it's the message for me It's really fitting for us That Jesus finishes up this text With a picture of heaven And a banquet taking place Don't you think? It's a banquet where everybody's gathered around the table Celebrating salvation Finally accomplished With the Lord Jesus Christ You know Jesus spoke about this banquet another time He spoke about it when he gathered with his disciples for the last Passover. And they shared bread and a cup. And he passed that cup around to him and he said to him, this is my blood being poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he says, I'll tell you, you won't drink this again. I won't drink this again, excuse me, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The picture that Jesus leaves that crowd with on that day him around the table, drinking a cup with his people in the Father's kingdom. is a fitting image for us to have in our minds as we gather now around the Lord's table and as we prepare to celebrate what Christ would do on our behalf that would get us to that place. So let's pray together. Lord, you are gracious and you are wonderful. Lord you Not only Preached the gospel over and over But you accomplished Our salvation On the cross Where you bled and died for us Where you shed your blood Where your body was brutalized where you died and paid the wages of our sin. Our sin on you, the price paid, your righteousness transferred to us that we might be justified and declared not guilty. And Lord, we celebrate that you've done that for us. And as we gather around this table, we, we look at our own lives and we examine ourselves and make sure we're striving to enter the narrow door. Because as we share this symbolic meal together today, we long, we long to one day sit around the table with you and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets and people from all over the world and every generation where we'll celebrate our salvation accomplished, sin eradicated, and the joy of your presence forever. I meet us at this table, Lord, we pray. For your sake and your glory, amen.